Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bienvenidos a la serie de sermones de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Check it out. God bless you. It was sure good to see Pastor Cedra back in the saddle again, wasn't it? it uh, <laughs> I... Uh, Eldon left something, he, he said 12 reasons for playing golf instead of baseball, and he left me a dozen golf balls up here from last week. So uh, at, at different times, I will be hurling golf balls at you during the sermon. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, yeah. Today, uh, we are, I'm reading from Exodus 20 chapter uh, 14, and from Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. In Exodus, it simply says, you shall not commit adultery. And then in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery literally means marriage breaking. You shall not commit marriage breaking. In its earliest meaning, this seventh commandment was a warning to Israel's males to keep away from their neighbor's wives. Adultery was narrowly defined as having sex with another man's wife. And in those days, women were looked at essentially as property. And basically, this commandment was saying, you don't steal or mess with another man's property. When Jesus came on the scene, he endorsed this commandment, and like he did in so many instances, gave it a broader and deeper meaning. Jesus said, in effect, you don't have to go to bed with a woman to commit adultery. If you even look at a woman to lust for her, you have committed adultery in your heart. Now let me make clear at this point what Jesus was not saying. He is not speaking of natural, normal sexual desires. Nor do I think he's talking about adolescent sexual fantasies, that young people experience regularly. Especially for young men growing up, a fantasy life is normal, not adultery. And besides that, you have to be married to commit adultery. No, what Jesus was talking about was the preoccupation of a married man with some woman besides his spouse or some woman besides her husband. Underline the word preoccupation. We're not talking about some occasional sexual whim here or desire. We're talking about a married man or woman who repeatedly, intentionally focuses on the charms, the beauty, the handsomeness, the attractiveness of another man or woman who cultivates romantic feelings for another person. And a person who, if the opportunity presents itself, will pursue and act on those romantic feelings. 
What Jesus was saying is before you commit physical adultery, you commit spiritual and emotional adultery. To transfer your affections, your passion, your deepest desires for intimacy to someone who is not your spouse, even if you never go to bed with that person, is still a marriage-breaking act according to Jesus. Marital infidelity generally is caused by, I think, three main reasons. Emotional immaturity, unresolved conflicts, or unmet needs. Some people are emotionally immature all their life because they think like 16-year-olds all their life. In their minds, they are still unattached, flirtatious teenagers who have not developed the maturity to make a commitment and stick to it. They still measure their virility or their attractiveness by how many people they can conquer or flirt with. Their egos are fed by adultery. Some people, and I think these last two categories by far are why adultery takes place, some people act out of unmet needs. It is easy to drift in any relationship. It is easy to take someone for granted after a while. It is easy to lose touch with the person you live with who is constantly changing. You have to stay in touch with how each of you is evolving. Because as one put, person put it, whatever you don't talk about dies between you. That's true of affection. It's true of sex. It's true of spiritual oneness. It's true of everything. Speak your needs, your desires, your hopes, your love to each other. Be specific and direct as you can about what you need without attacking each other. Instead of saying, you love your job more than you love me. You're never around when I need you. Why don't you try? Honey, I'm feeling lonely. I miss you. Let's spend some more time together. I haven't seen enough of you lately. Let me ask you, which approach do you think would work with you? By the time most of us get to our unmet needs, we are frustrated and angry. We attack instead of ask. We nag, we yell, we accuse the other of the basest intent. Let me ask you this morning, what's festering inside of you? Can you state what you need in concrete and positive ways instead of clobbering the other person? Paul says, speak the truth in love to each other. That applies especially to marriage. The other category is what I call unresolved conflict or destructive conflict patterns. People are going to disagree. How many of you in marriage have ever disagreed? I, uh, this is an underwhelming response. Uh, how many of you have found out you have married a person very different from you? They don't think like you. They don't act like you. Sometimes you look at them and you go, what planet are you from? Men are from Mars. I don't know where, never mind. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. I have the women in the palm of my hand. Anyway, we can strongly disagree on a number of issues and still love and respect each other. Did you know that's possible? But when the disagreement turns into personal insults or questioning the other person's integrity 
or becoming hypercritical or disdainful, no one can take that for very long. Attacking the person instead of the problem often leaves wounds that a spouse just might seek a cure for elsewhere. Or they might try to find compassion from any source. Let me invite you this morning to look at your conflict patterns as a couple. Every couple develops patterns for how they do conflict. When I, when I do premarital counseling or when I do marriage counseling, one of the first things I ask is, what is your conflict pattern? And there's always a pattern. You know, person A says something insensitive. Person B responds by withdrawing. Person A senses the hurt and the anger and withdraws too. This goes on for a few hours until someone explodes. Person A turns into a martyr and proclaims their victimhood. Person B says you started it, and so on and so on. We all have patterns, and everybody, you know, it's almost like a play. You do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. This pushes my button, and then I say this, and it pushes your button, and on and on we go. They both blame each other. And often they just don't resolve it. They just don't talk for three days and then pretend everything is all right with any real issues getting resolved. And then they do the same thing a week later, a month later, a year later, a lifetime later, an affair later, a divorce later. Try talking to each other about what happens when you fight. What is your pattern? You have a pattern. And Where in these arguments can you break the pattern? I find when I counsel with people, there's usually five or six places where they could have stopped the downward spiral if they would have just done something different for once or stated it differently for once. It can be stopped. So let me give you the invitation. Please talk about these patterns when you're not angry. And by the way, if you start talking about these patterns and you start fighting about how you fight, stop! And if you can't see the pattern, get help. I'd be glad to help you. I'm an expert on fighting. (laughs) Because if you have unhealthy disagreement patterns that go on indefinitely, it will break your marriage and it will open you up to temptation. Remember, what you can't talk about constructively dies. Conflict handled well takes you deeper into love. Conflict handled destructively kills relationships. Conflict and how you handle it usually makes or breaks relationships. It's true in everything. It's true at work. You know what they say at work? People get hired for their portfolio. They get fired for their personality. It happens in churches. It happens everywhere. What is your conflict pattern? Do you know how to work it out? Or is your relationship dying because you don't ever really resolve conflict? That is a big question. Now, Jesus talked about, as we're talking about marriage and saving marriages, Jesus gives us a reason to end a marriage. Jesus said, for the cause of adultery. But I do not believe when Jesus gave us this, it was an exhaustive list. Jesus said we are not guilty of adultery or marriage breaking if our spouse is guilty of multiple affairs or an affair that won't be given up. He says you do not have to endure that. 
He, no one should have to live with such behavior. He said, you can divorce and walk away and you are not guilty of adultery. But there are other things I believe that warrant divorce that Jesus didn't talk about. And let me go down a few more. One of the things is that you should not be accused of adultery if you divorce someone who is physically abusing you. No one should face repeated physical danger in their own home. No one should risk their life to stay in a dysfunctional and violent marriage. Amen? Amen. We have literally condemned people to death because of stupidity like that. A third reason is sexual abuse of children. No marriage is worth the trauma that creates a lifetime of wounds and scars in an innocent child. If one of your spouses is, is uh, sexually abusing a child, it is your Christian duty to get out of there. At that point, our allegiance is to protect the child, not keep a farce of a marriage going. I'll give you a fourth possible reason. If a person is an out-of-control out alcoholic or addict who will not get help, who will not confess their need, and who is destroying themselves and destroying the family emotionally and financially, you do not have to live forever with that. And a fifth possible reason is a mentally ill person who will, deal not, will not deal with their illness responsibly. They won't get help, they won't seek counseling, they won't take their medication, or they self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, and they are hurting and destroying everyone else. You can get out of that. Just because a person is drowning doesn't mean we are obligated to drown with them. Just because a person is self-destructing doesn't mean that we allow them to destroy us too and, their, and our children. A healthy marriage takes commitment and work and prayer. A lot of people these days have decided to skip marriage altogether and just live together. That is more and more popular. But I'm going to tell you what is the problem with that. The commitment going into these kind of cohabitation arrangements, it means that the expectations and the commitments are usually fuzzy and undefined, which almost inevitably leads to failure. Dr. Nancy McCatworthy, there's actually a person named Catworthy. I'm going to listen to her anyway. She was a sociologist at Ohio State University. And for 10 years, she studied the phenomenon of unmarried couples living together. When she began, she confessed she was predisposed towards cohabitation. Couples said it was wonderful, and she believed them. She thought it was a sensible arrangement, a useful step in courtship in which couples get to know each other before they decide to get married. But her research involving the testing of hundreds of couples, married and non-married, changed her mind. The, th the, the things people say living together is doing for them, she found out, were false. Couples who cohabitated, she found, had more problems than couples who married first. Even if they cohabitated and then got married, living together did something negative to the relationship. They got into really bad habits of non-commitment. In every area, the couples who lived together before marriage disagreed more often than couples who hadn't. She discovered living together doesn't solve your problems or prepare you for marriage at all. 
The real issue she discovered was commitment. Commitment makes living together work. Knowing something probably was temporary, like living together, affected the degree of commitment and problem-solving the couples had. So unmarried couples were less than wholehearted in working to sustain their relationship, and that became a habit. Consequently, 75 to 85% of people who cohabit, the relationship fails, and people end up with broken hearts, especially the women, she said in her research, were badly hurt. She concluded this, strategically, you are much better off marrying than living together. Anything less than a full commitment just doesn't work, she says. And this is from a non-Christian sociologist who studied this for 10 years. The God who made the universe and us knows what makes us run best. Humans don't work well in insecure situations. If you're going to show the deepest levels of physical intimacy and emotional intimacy, you better have a commitment at the deepest level too. As Beyonce, that great theologian said, if you want it, you better put a ring on it. If you want it, you better put a ring on it. Oh, 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 oh. Watch out, Beyonce, there's a new sheriff in town. There better not be any smartphones out in the second service. (laughs) Because if you're not committed to work through things, right from the start, you're doomed because there will always be things to work through. If you say, if it doesn't work out, I'm gone, you're already gone. That's why only the full commitment of marriage gives you a chance to make it for a lifetime. Unless you're just one of those persons who enjoys going from relationship to relationship, getting your heart broken over and over again. If you're into that, this is the way to do it. Marriage is a covenant. It is a promise before God to be faithful and committed to one person in an exclusive way for a lifetime. The goal, according to Jesus, is not to just avoid adultery. It is to cultivate oneness on every level, physically, intellectually, spiritually, in terms of values. And if you haven't discovered it, let me make it normal for you now. Marriage is hard. It takes a lifetime commitment and promise to pull it off. You have to work at it. You have to forgive 70 times 7 times 7 times 7. You have to pray. You need God to make it work and take it to its deepest levels. We live in an age that doesn't understand real love at all. We live in an age that has idolized sex and idolized romantic love. Let me tell you something from a historical perspective. Romantic love, like we see in the movies and with Hollywood and all that stuff, that's only been around a couple of hundred years. Before that, marriages were primarily arranged. Here's my daughter, here's a cow, go get hitched. (laughs) The idea, you know, that this romantic love spawned is that there is someone out there who is my soulmate 
That is very, very recent in history. We have made in my lifetime an idol of sex, starting in the 60s. We believe that sex is the greatest natural high you can get. If somebody has missed out on sex, we feel like in our culture they have missed out on life. They have missed out on the best thing they could miss out on. The Bible disagrees. It states, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There's the real high. We have made romantic love an idol. Somewhere out there is my soulmate. Let me tell you a secret about soulmates. Soulmates are made... They are not found. Being someone's soulmate comes from sharing values, sharing faith, acts of kindness and sacrifice, working out the differences and the problems, praying for each other, praying with each other. Soulmates are formed. Soulmates are not found. Forget this romantic gobbledygook. And let me say one more thing. And this is where I'm really going to go in deep. I think Christians have made an idol out of marriage itself. We talk like you must be married to have a meaningful and truly happy life. Oh, poor so-and-so, they never found a man or they never found a woman. Oh, we pity them so. Is that why there's so many divorces? Marriage, as we see in the divorce rate, guarantees nothing. The Bible takes no such attitude towards marriage as we moderns. Because the highest high is not sexual ecstasy, it is spiritual ecstasy. The key to life is not marriage. Romantic love does not stay forever and is not what our soul really longs for. Our souls were made for God. Only He can fill them, not our spouse. Our souls were made for agape love from the throne of God, not the mere pleasures of erotic love. The joy of the Lord is my strength, not the joy of my wife or the joy of my husband. And if you come into a marriage with an empty heart, marriage will not fill it. It'll just drain you some more. Anybody want to get married after that? (laughs) By the way, We've got it backwards from what Scripture teaches. In Scripture, singleness is honored. Jesus and Paul seem to think singleness gave a person more freedom than marriage does. Singleness meant a person could focus more on God. It meant a person could be more available to others. It meant a person could have more and deeper friendships. Singleness meant a person was freer to serve in a greater variety of ways. Singleness with Scripture was not considered an inferior way of life. It was considered an open door to a remarkable life, not a consignment to loneliness. We need to quit feeling like someone is a second-rate Christian or second-rate in the happiness department just because they are not married. You know, some of the happiest, most fulfilled, remarkable lives are, you know, when I look back and I, I think... I've known remarkable single people like Beulah Lyons and and Elizabeth Canode. Some of you remember them. Betty Oldham, Jane Mon, Mary Lou Roog, Anna Peachy. I got news for you. These people are not lonely. These people are not unfulfilled. Mary Lou and Anna have more friends than you can shake a stick at. 
They have more people coming to them than they have time for. They have friends all over Canada and America and all over the world. They are not sitting around pining going, oh, oh, I'm so unhappy and unfulfilled. If only a man would come into my life. They are not doing that. They are happier than about 99% of the married people I know. Is God for marriage? Of course. He invented it. And he wants marriages to thrive. But the key to life is Jesus, not marriage. Marriage is critically important to God's plan. His first commandment was, be fruitful and multiply. But marriage is not a substitute for God. Family was the first institution. But it's not everything. And marriage, unlike Hollywood romantic notions of love, is not easy. That's why it takes a promise, a covenant to hold it together. That's why it takes God pouring his love into ours and to, to, to help us grow into oneness. And by the way, that's why it takes the community around us to help support us too. It takes a village. And it's not just a village for helping raise kids. It's a village for helping marriages. One thing is for sure. The myth that love just happens and that people live automatically, happily ever after, when two fine, good Christian people get, to get, get together, that myth must go. Love is hard work. Love must be learned. Love is a decision much more than a feeling. Let me say that again. That's as anti-Hollywood as you can get. Love is a decision much more than a feeling. Good marriages do not just happen. Do not commit adultery. And the best way you do that is to work at, pray for, and commit to a great marriage. The way you don't commit adultery is not to try not to commit adultery. Just fall head over heels in love with your spouse. I remember what Paul Newman when he was alive. How many of you remember Paul Newman? Well, okay, I got more than that. Then marriage is hard. Okay. They asked Paul Newman one time, they said, you know, you are around all these beautiful Hollywood starlets throwing themselves at you all the time. Why do you have a reputation as a man who is faithful to his wife? Remember what Paul Newman said? He said, why should I eat hamburger when I have steak at home? <laughs> Amen. Create a great marriage. And a great marriage is love overcoming differences, love overcoming mistakes, love overcoming sins. It is the story of grace operating in real life. It is, the, it is love with its work clothes on. I conclude with this brief story. There was a couple celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. They were out at a very fancy restaurant, and there... The wife of 40 years looked at her husband with tears in her eyes and she held up a glass, a champagne glass, I'm sure with fruit juice in it. And she said, we made it 40 years because of what we did together. And he, they clinked their glasses and then he picked up, his, he picked up the glass again and he said, we made it 40 years in spite of what we did together. <laughs> that is real love. 
The love that overcomes what a lifetime of living together throws at us. You and I are called to far more, Jesus taught, than simply staying out of trouble. <laughs> we are called to something great. Marriage doesn't guarantee happiness. Singleness doesn't guarantee unhappiness. But God has a way for all of us. Let us follow that way because God who made us knows what's best for us and he wants us to thrive. He wants our marriages to be good, if not great. He wants us to show the world how grace works, either singly or in marriage. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. This went better than I thought. <laughs> I'd like the worship team to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. And we're going to pray for you. But right now... I want you to pray for your marriage or pray that in your singleness you have incredible relationships. And most people do. Let us support each other in this journey. It does take a village. <laughs> and let's bless the Lord.
Jesus, strengthen every marriage. Break every destructive cycle. Bless every single person. And use them in incredible ways. Bless us all. Bless us all as we leave this place. In Jesus' name. Amen.